talk about today is this. When I was a little kid, a long time ago, back in the 1950s. No. I know. Anyway, when I was a little kid, I watched this, this. movie that was based on actual events. And it was called Guyana, Crime of the Century. Now, it aired in 1979, so I was like seven years old. She was two. It, it made this lasting impression on me, and I, I guess you can probably guess it was about Jim Jones, and you probably know that name very well. Jimmy, Jimmy John John. Alex don't know who Jim Jones is, and I'm not talking about the rapper, Jim Jones. I didn't know. All right. But anyway, today, we're going to take a stroll down memory lane Yay. and revisit Guyana. Intro. So don't tell me what to do. <laughs> back for another episode um we're gonna put our serious faces on now probably won't last i mean you can only breathe so long under a mask but anyway so i honestly believe that back then in 1979 when i watched that movie when i was seven years old i think that's probably when my interest in like mass murders and serial killers and cults that interest was peaked um now, I'm not saying that I want to do what these people have done. My whole thing with this is mostly the psychology of, like, what makes these people act like this or do these things. Um, and, like, how, like, these crimes are solved. But, but now I'm kind of getting away from what I was talking about. Um, but anyway, like, in the Jim Jones case, you know, it fascinates me that he could essentially brainwash so many people into committing suicide with only, a, you know, like a few people, like, realized that, hey, this isn't right, you know? I, and I have never understood the thing with cults because I'm so hard-headed that I just can't imagine somebody convincing me to do stuff like that. I mean, I'm just like, you don't tell, like, Alex said, cue the intro, and I'm like, you don't tell me what to do. You don't do that. <laughs> but anyway, it, it, I've just never understood you know, um, the mentality of a person that gets caught up in a cult and gets brainwashed like that. <laughs> so, who was this man named Jim Jones? Jim Jones. Well, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Alright, Alex. This is not a funny story. I'm not laughing. Okay. Zip your lip. James Warren Jones was born May the 13th of 1931. So, this this all started out pretty good long time ago <clears throat> he was born in a rural rural area of indiana his dad was james thurman jones and his mom was lynetta putnam putnam yeah i should have kept my mouth shut <laughs> you unzipped your lip okay. anyway he was born during the great depression and he grew up in a shack without plumbing 
I mean, we have a water main break here, and the kids go ballistic. Like, I can't have no water. I can't flush the toilet. <laughs> anyway, this is how he grew up. No plumbing. And, I mean, that's how a lot of people grew up back in those days. But, anyway, he loved to read, and he spent a lot of his time studying Joseph Stalin, Karl Marx, Mao Zedong, Mao Zedong, um, Mahatma Gandhi, and Adolf Hitler. He also developed a deep interest in religion. The few friends that he had, and he had very few friends, okay, when he was a kid, <clears throat> but they described him as the really weird kid who was obsessed with religion and death. I know. Like Michael Myers. I, nah, he went and never mind. Anyway, he'd often hold funerals for small animals on his parents' property, and it's been said that he stabbed a cat to death. So that's the part that reminded me of, of Michael Myers. But anyway, Jim claimed that his father was associated with the KKK, which had become quite the thing to do during the Great Depression for whatever reason. Um, but they, him and his dad would often have arguments about race issues. Um, and he stopped, actually, he stopped talking to his dad for a very long time after his dad refused to let one of his African-American friends in his house. Now, not long after that, his parents separated and Jim moved away with his mom to Richmond, Indiana. And in 1948, Jim graduated early from Richmond High School with honors. So if he graduated early, he, he has to be a pretty smart dude. Yeah. You know? Smart man. Well, after school, he went to work as an orderly at Reed Hospital, and senior management just held him in high regards. They thought he was, you know, good hard worker, but it was also known that he had once gotten really rough with a patient that was in traction while he was shaving the man, and it caused the man to become injured. Now, <clears throat> while he was working there, now, now, as far as I know, he never, like, was punished for, you know, hurting that patient. But anyway, while he was working there at Reed Hospital, he met a nurse by the name of Marceline Baldwin. And in 1949, she became his wife. Soon, they relocated to Bloomington, Indiana, where he attended Indiana University in Bloomington. It was there, it was there that he was impressed by a speech that the first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, gave there about the, the plight of African Americans. In 1951, he and his wife moved again, and this time they moved to Indianapolis, where for two years he attended Indiana University, and then he started taking night classes at Butler University, and that's where he earned his degree in secondary education. Well, when he was 20 years old, he started attending gatherings that was held by um, the Communist Party USA in Indianapolis. After becoming upset because his mother was being harassed by the FBI after attending an event that focused on Paul Robeson <clears throat> or Robeson, maybe it's Robeson, and um, after becoming frustrated with persecution of accused communists in the United States, he started wondering what he could do about this, and he, the answer he came up with was infiltrate the church with basically with communism 
Okay. Now, it was basically just a big scam from the beginning. Now, in 1952, Jim became a, a student pastor at Somerset Southside Methodist Church. But he left after claiming that the church wouldn't let him integrate African Americans into the church. And it was also around that time that he witnessed a faith healing service and noticed how those types of service uh, uh, services they attract like large numbers of people and their money. And it was then that he decided that this would help him accomplish his social goals by profiting off of the people who would attend his faith healing services. Now, Jim organized a revival type service to take place. Um, and that was in like June the 11th through the 15th of 1956 at Cato Tabernacle in Indianapolis. Well, since his name wasn't out there yet, you know, he nobody knew who he was as a, as a preacher. He worked it so that he would share the pulpit with another healing evangelist named Reverend William A. M. Branham. And um, he was kind of out there like among the names of like Oral Roberts because I mean if you remember uh, Oral Roberts was a pretty famous um, faith healer back in the day but anyway Branham was up there with him well after that took place Jim decided to organize his own church and he named it the People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel but that was later shortened to just People's Temple now like I said earlier Jim had studied Adolf Hitler and he continued to study him and Father Devon so that he could learn to manipulate the people of his church. During the 1960s, he was appointed as the director of the local Human Rights Commission. And while he was asked to keep a low profile, he completely ignored that advice. Of course he did. He, yeah, he started using like TV and radio to share his views. It was also during that time that he worked on integrating churches, restaurants, um, telephone company uh the indianapolis police department a theater an amusement park and the indiana university health methodist hospital um but it was still the 60s and he received a lot of backlash for his views on integration so somebody painted a swastika on the temple and a stick of dynamite was left on a pile of coal at the temple and somebody even threw a dead cat at his house after he received a bunch of threatening phone calls. So people were just, you know, back in the 60s was, you know, the time of the civil rights movements. And uh, people weren't ready for, like, integration, you know, like, um, people going to school together and church together and shopping together, eating together, whatever. They, they were still stuck in the whites only thing you know yeah um and so they were lashing out at him because he was ready to you know bring the different races together but anyway through the years jim and marceline decided to expand their family and they adopted several non-white children and they referred to their family as their rainbow family Afterwards, Jones stated, integration is a more personal thing with me now. It's a question of my son's future. 
1954, a daughter named Agnes was adopted, and she was part Native American. In 1959, the Joneses adopted three Korean-American children named Lou, Stephanie, and Suzanne. Then they took it a step further and started encouraging members of the temple to adopt orphans from war-torn Korea. So they wanted them, like, you know, adopting people, too. And the only biological child they had at that point was born the same year that they adopted the, the three Korean-American children. That was in 1959. And they named the little boy Stephen Gandhi. Two years later, they became the first white couple in the state of Indiana to adopt an Afri- African-American child, and they named him James Warren Jones Jr., which was Jim's name. So they didn't name their flesh and blood kid after the dad. They named one that they adopted after him. I just, I don't know. I just found that kind of odd. They also adopted a white son whose mother was a member of the temple. For a while, the family moved to Brazil and tried to establish the people's temple there. He studied the economy there and he was very careful as to not portray himself as a communist in a foreign land. So instead of talking about Castro or Marx, he spoke of an apostolic communal lifestyle and after a few years of living there he started feeling guilty because he had basically just abandoned the temple back in indianapolis and everything that it had stood for and after his associate pastors that were still there told him that the temple was about to collapse without him he decided to move his family back to indiana well when he returned to the temple in indiana and this part is just kills me he told the members of the temple that the world would be involved in a nuclear war on July the 15th, 1967. I mean, he had the exact date he had of when this nuclear war was going to happen. But anyway, this nuclear war, it would lead to a socialist Eden on Earth. And to be safe, they needed to move the temple to Northern California. So what do they do? Like any good flock? They just pack their stuff and they move to the Redwood Valley in Northern California. Now, in the early 1970s, Jim started preaching that Christianity was a flyaway religion. And at one time, he was even quoted as saying, if you're born in capitalist America, racist America, fascist America, then you're born in sin. But if you're born in socialism, you're not born in sin. Now, he also started rejecting the Bible, and he said that it was a tool to suppress women and non-white people. And then he turned around and he wrote this booklet that was called The Letter Killeth, and in it he criticized the King James Version of the Bible, but this wasn't enough for old Jim. He began preaching that he was the reincarnation, now Alex, get this, he was the reincarnation of Father Divine. Mahatma Gandhi, Jesus, Buddha, and Vladimir Lenin. So, how about that? He was like, all five of these people all rolled into one. He was reincarnated as all five of those people. (laughs) I mean, this man was clearly off his rocker. Because in 1976, in a telephone interview, he told... Now, all this is in one conversation. He told the person on the phone that he was talking to that he was first of all he was agnostic and then he turned around and said that 
he was an atheist in the same conversation now he claimed to be both of those in that same conversation after he had just said that he was the reincarnate of those five that I mentioned earlier now you can't see me out there y'all but I am rolling my eyes (laughs) now the following year his wife Marceline said in a New York Times interview that Jim was actually trying to promote Marxism in America and he was using religion to do it I don't know if he told her to say that or if she just kind of blurted that out or what but it kind of seems like they would have held that in a little bit longer but anyway five years after the temple relocated to California they went through such a growth that they had to open branches of the temple in San Fernando San Francisco and Los Angeles and eventually they moved the temple's headquarters from where they were in Northern California um, down to San Francisco which is still in Northern California but anyway because there was like space for expansion there um, where there wasn't in the first place that they had settled Um, now after they moved the headquarters to San Francisco the temple became influential in the city's politics and as a matter of fact they were very they had a very significant impact on the election of George Moscone I think that's how you say it as the mayor in 1975 well after Moscone was appointed was um elected as mayor he turned around and um appointed Jim as the chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority Commission now, in that position, he was able to come into contact with some very prominent politicians on the local and national levels. Just before the 1976 presidential election, Jim Jones met with Vice President candidate Walter Mondale on his campaign airplane, which led Mondale to publicly praise the temple. And I would just really like to know what was said on that airplane. Because, I mean, he... I, J, Jim Jones's name was out there, but I'm sure that all he was about was not out there. So I would really like to know what the conversation was for Mondale to come out and like, you know, publicly play, praise him and stuff. You know. Yeah. Um. Former First Lady Rosalind Carter, she met with him on several occasions, and she even corresponded with him about Cuba. So it wasn't just the everyday people who were in some way manipulated by Jim Jones. Um, like I said, they ha- he had to, I don't know, he had some kind of way about him, I guess. So now that we know who Jim Jones was, and more importantly, the type of person he was, let's get to the main course. All of that was just the appetizer. So now we're going to talk about Jonestown. Now, after an article was published in a magazine called New West, that article was written by Marshall um, Kilduff. Now, Jim and several hundred of his followers suddenly just moved to Guyana after that article was published in that magazine. And they officially called this place that they moved to the People's Temple Agricultural Project. But it was what we called, like, came to know as Jonestown. Now, apparently, Kilduff's article contained accusations of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. And so I guess just, like, packing up and moving to a whole other country just 
made them look innocent, huh? Yeah. I mean, that don't look guilty at all, you know? No, Let's just move to another country after we've been there. accused of all these horrible things, you know? Jonestown had actually started being built a few years before that article was published. Um, but, you know, now they had to go there. Um, now, he promoted it as a place to build a socialist paradise and a sanctuary from the probing eyes of the media in San Francisco. But, the reality of it was, it was built to serve as a model communist community, and he even said that the temple encompassed the purest uh, communist there were. Like, the people that lived in Jonestown were the most pure communist ever. That makes no sense. I know. I know. Um... But things weren't really so pure inside that compound. Um, members of the temple, they weren't allowed to leave the commune. I mean, that, you know, they couldn't freely, freely come and go. They couldn't leave if they wanted to. Um, I guess if they wanted to leave, they would probably just have to, like, sneak out, like, in the dead of night or something. But he even claimed that he and his followers would all die together, move to another planet. Move to another planet, Alex. Let's go Mars. And live blissfully. So, if his followers didn't see him as a nut job before that, you would think this would be the major eye-opener. And I guess for some that it was. Um, now, I know they were probably brainwashed, but like I, I said earlier, he studied ways to manipulate people. But don't you think at some point you're just like, there ain't nothing right about this, you know? Let's go. Let's go to Mars. That's what he wanted. Well, he didn't say Mars, but he wanted you know to move I, I just don't understand. But anyway, now there was some who did defect from the temple, and among them was um, a lady named Grace Stowen and her husband, Timothy. Now, Jim claimed that he was the biological father of their child, even though Grace and Timothy's name was on the child's birth certificate. Now, she left the temple in 1976, and this was before any of, like, I think it was before they had started moving into that place in Guyana. But anyway... She left in 1976, and she filed from di for divorce. Well, Jim, he ordered Timothy to take the child to Jonestown so there wouldn't be a messy custody dispute with Grace. Well, in June of 1977, Timothy finally wakes up. Like, he's like, this is not right. And he decided, you know, it was time to go. But get this. Oh, this and this just really drives me nuts. He left the child with Jim Jones at Jonestown. Why? I, I don't know. I mean, now, I know that Jim Jones was a very volatile man, but, I mean, maybe he held a gun on him or something and said he couldn't take the child. They would have to kill me for me to leave my kids there, you know? Especially knowing what you know yeah. going on inside there. I, I don't know. Now, um... It was also known that during that time period, Jim fathered another child with a temple member named um, Carolyn Layton. Now, in the fall of 1977, Timothy Stowen and other former temple members formed a group called Concerned Relatives because they all had family members that had remained in Jonestown. Stowen traveled to Washington, D.C. and met with several political leaders, and his plea caught the attention of a California congressman named Leo Ryan. And he wrote a letter on 
showings we have to the Guyanese prime minister. Now, the group also filed a lawsuit against the temple for the return of, of Stowen's son, who had been, you know, left at Jonestown. Well, things started quickly going downhill for Jim at this point. Many of his political contacts cut ties with him, while others were quick to defend him. In April of 1978, the concerned relatives groups, um, they sent packets that, were, that contained um, documents, letters, and affidavits to the People's Temple, members of the press, and members of Congress. And in June of that same year, a lady by the name of um, Deborah Layton, she had escaped from the temple. She provided the group with information detailing crimes by the temple and the very poor living conditions in Johnstown. So it must have been pretty bad. Yeah. At this point, Jim was starting to get desperate. So he hired these two guys who were uh, conspiracy theorists. They had written a, a JFK conspiracy theory. Their names was Mark Lane and Donald Freed. He wanted them to make a case that was a grand conspiracy against the temple by U.S. intelligence agencies. And he basically wanted to copycat Eldridge Cleaver, who was a member of the Black Panthers. And he had been able to come back to the United States after rebuilding his reputation. So basically what Jim wanted was them to build up this big conspiracy theory and have everybody thinking, oh, Jim's an okay guy. You know, it was just uh, they were out to get him. So, okay, he's okay. Let's let him come back to the United States. Well, in the fall of 1978, that congressman, Ryan, that I mentioned, um, he went to Jonestown to investigate the human rights abuse claims for himself, and he took with him um, relatives that uh, relatives of the temple members, um, a camera crew from NBC, and um, a couple of reporters from different newspapers. Now, when they all arrived, Jim had this big reception for them there, you know. Um, and three days later, the visitors ended up leaving in a hurry after that congressman, Ryan, was attacked with a knife by um, a temple member named Don Sly. Now, along with the visitors, 15 temple members left also, and Jim didn't even try to stop them. And so, you know, they probably thought, well, you know, he's letting them go because we're here observing, you know. Well, once they reached the airstrip, members of John's Red Brigade, which was what he called his armed guards, started shooting. The gunman killed Congressman Ryan and four others. And at the same time, someone who they thought was defecting from the temple started firing a gun inside of the airplane. One of the NBC cameramen was able to capture the first few seconds of the shooting on film before he himself was killed. Now, later that very same day is when the massacre took place. Mm. Um, over 900 inhabitants of Jonestown, including 304 children, died from what was believed to be cyanide poisoning. Until September the 11th, 2001, this was the single greatest loss of American civilians in a deliberate act. Later, the FBI uncovered, or recovered, a 45-minute-long audio recording of the poisoning in progress. 
on the recording, you can hear Jim telling Temple members that the Soviet Union would not allow them passage during the shooting at the airstrip, or due to the that shooting, they wouldn't let them make passage. Because apparently the Temple had been negotiating with the Soviet Union for Jim and his followers to make an exodus, I guess, through the Soviet Union. Jim's reasoning for having them commit suicide was quoted as, men will parachute in on us, in here on us, and shoot some of our innocent babies. And he also said they'll torture our children, they'll torture some of our people here, they'll torture our seniors. His earlier words of hostile forces converting their children to fascism seemed valid enough for the parents to help their children commit suicide. Jim called this revolutionary suicide, and they would do it by drinking flavor aid, not Kool-Aid. You know how they, the saying is, don't drink the Kool-Aid? Yeah. It should be, don't drink the flavor aid. Yeah, don't drink the flavor Yeah. Um, but anyway, there was packets of um, grape-flavored uh, flavor aid found at the scene, and it had been mixed with the cyanide and a sedative. And now this was days before there was Sam's Club or Costco um, or even Walmart. I mean, you know, so how would you get that much flavor aid? Because, I mean, 900 people, that's a lot of people to give, to mix drinks for. Um, Or better yet, how would you get that much cyanide and sedatives? Well, I'm going to tell you how he got the cyanide. Jim Slick, okay. He obtained a jeweler's license, which allowed him to purchase cyanide in bulk. Because apparently they use cyanide to clean gold. I didn't know that. So, he had been bringing in large shipments of it for a year, a few years before this mass suicide. So, I I mean, he, he's not, he might have been crazy, but he was not dumb by any means. You know? I mean, like I said at the beginning, he graduated high school early. So... I mean, he was smart. He was just crazy, you know. Um, Also, on that recording, you can hear Jim, um, like, scolding those that were crying. He would say, stop these hysterics. This is not the way for people who are socialist or communist to die. No way for us to die. We must die with some dignity. His own wife, Marceline, protested killing the children, so she was physically restrained, and then she joined the other adults in killing herself. At the end of the recording, Jim is heard saying, We didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide, protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. Now, there was two guys that escaped the poisoning. Their names were Odell Rhodes and Stanley Clayton. And they said that the children were first given the flavor aid by their own parents. And then um, they were, all of them were told that the families were to lay down together. I can't imagine knowingly handing my child something that's going to cause them to die. I know. I don't get it. I just don't get it. So what happened to Jim? Well, he was found on the central stage in the pavilion. He was resting on a pillow near his deck chair with a gunshot wound to his head that was consistent with suicide, according to the official 
autopsy that was conducted in December of 1978. James Warren Jones had died with his followers at the age of 47. That's like two years younger than I am right now. He did all of that. He did all of that before the age of 47. Like, and like, what have I done? No. <laughs> I've got a podcast, yo. Got a podcast. And I got three beautiful children. Three children. And a cute grandson. Grandson. And a cat. A cat. Two cats. Two cats. A dragon. Dragon. A turtle. But anyway, what did you think of that? Alex, had you ever heard of that? I've not heard of that, but he's did, he did all of that before 50. Like yeah. Before he could get to 50. So y'all never talked about this at school? No. See, I feel like there's a lot of stuff that y'all don't talk about in school that's just, like, scraped away. And, like, I mean, I don't feel like... I mean, it's not like some parts of history, but I feel like it's still maybe like a social studies type thing that should have been discussed. I mean, I ain't saying give y'all a test on it and stuff like that, but I mean, I feel like it's need to know things, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, 900 people. That's crazy. It is. Well, that's all that I've got for this episode. I really appreciate y'all's patience and listening to me tell this long story. Our goofiness at the beginning. Yes. Um, we just, you know, we'd be crazy like that sometimes. But anyway, y'all have a good rest of your week. Don't forget to come back Saturday for the um, Weekend Weird Files. And, of course, we'll have a whole new episode on Monday on Mystery blah, 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 mystery Murder and Magic. I can't even think of the name you of my own, podcast. my own show. All right, have a good one.